because he was calm. He was collected. He was level-headed and he just got right in my face. His nose was about one inch from my nose as my, as my arms twitching and, you know, and uh, he got right in my face and he says to me something that absolutely got me started on this contextual intelligence journey. He said to me, don't you ever talk to my wife like that again. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and today's guest is fantastic. Matt Coots is an award-winning author, researcher, professor, and Fulbright scholar in medical sciences. His book on contextual intelligence and how using 3D thinking to navigate complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity was honored for innovation and cutting-edge perspective within leadership books in 2013. Matt has authored numerous other books, including They Were Sent, How to Stand Out in a Crowd, as well as two textbooks for healthcare professionals that focus on how to integrate leadership and management, as well as answer the difficult leadership questions that face us all. Matt has a PhD in global leadership and serves as a senior editor for two academic journals, and he has published over three dozen scholarly papers in peer-reviewed journals. He is a frequent conference presenter and has worked with clients in multinational and Fortune 500 organizations to develop greater contextual intelligence. At the end of the day, nothing makes him happier than helping people navigate the complexity and uncertainty of life and business by learning to think differently and lead better. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dr. Richard. I'm super excited to be with you today. Well, your bio is so interesting that I just read to everybody, and I'm excited to have this discussion with you as well. And as you know, I like to go back and find out about people's beginnings and what put them on the path they're on. So take us through what led you to become an expert in contextual intelligence. Well, it's uh, like anything, it's an interesting and a long, varied story. I'll, I'll cut right to the chase. And, you know, when I was, when I was a young boy, I, I'm, I don't remember exactly the age, but I was 12, 13 years old. I had a pretty common routine where I would, I would walk in the door from school, drop my bag right at the corner and uh, right in front of the door so the next person coming behind me could trip over it, really, and, and head to the kitchen. I'd grab a snack and then straight out the back door to the alley. We really didn't have a backyard. I was kind of living in the, in the, in the city, and, and uh, we went right to the alley where a bunch of my buddies would be waiting around to play some stickball. And, uh, and that's pretty much what we did almost every day when the weather was nice. And, and I, I suppose an important part of, of this story is, is understanding my dad a little bit before I continue on. And he was a huge Star Trek fan. 
And uh, so much so that, you know, this was back in the days of VHS before all the, the digital and, and Netflix and all that. But it was, uh, we had, we had every VHS Star Trek episode there was, and we watched every single one of them all the time. And if it was on TV, we would set the VCR back in the days when people would set VCRs to record the episodes. And it was crazy. So, so he was like that. And we had to learn the Vulcan death grip. It was one of the, one of the requirements to be in the house. So it was a game that we played all the time. He would practice on us. We would practice on him. And it was just kind of this thing, thing we did. And, and, and we got all pretty good at it. And so that's a, I guess an important part of the context of, of this story. And so any rate, I'm coming home from school one day and I'm just going through the normal routine, heading out to play stickball. And my mom is there waiting for us or for me to tell me that I can't play stickball today because I'm being punished. I did not do my chores uh, before school. And, uh, and consequently, I had to do those chores, the extra chores that were the punishment, and I couldn't play stickball. So I was upset. I was mad. I mean, I was, I was you know, the pitcher here. I mean, they needed me. My, my team was dependent on me here, and, and I couldn't go play. So I was upset. So I mumbled something extremely inappropriate, I would imagine. I don't remember what I said, but I mumbled something to my mom under my breath that made no uncertain terms that I was you know, unsatisfied with, with what was going on. And what I wasn't aware of was the fact that my dad was home. Uh, today. Now, every other day he was still at work. He was never, uh, usually never at home when I came home from school. But today, for some strange reason, he was home and he was in the kitchen. I was not aware of this. And, uh, and he overheard me talk that way to my mom. And before I could even turn around and head towards my room, he had come out of that kitchen so fast. I mean, you know, granted, my dad was a big guy, really big guy. He never moved fast, but he moved at lightning speed. You know, my, my own cat-like reflexes weren't even enough to evade his, his attack. And, and uh, so he, he got to me and he applied the Vulcan death grip. And he had it perfect. I mean, my arm was shaking. My fingers were twitching. I could, I almost felt it down in the nerves in my leg. I felt like they were probably twitching too, but he had, he had nailed the Vulcan death grip perfectly and walked me over to the wall and leaned me up against the wall. And as calm as could be, I mean, this was the amazing part because he was calm, he was collected, he was level-headed, and he just got right in my face. His nose was about one inch from my nose as my, as my arms twitching and, you know, and uh, he got right in my face and he says to me something that absolutely got me started on this contextual intelligence journey. He said to me, don't you ever talk to my wife like that again. And, you know... As a 12 or 13-year-old, a lot of different things can go through your head in a moment like that. But for some reason, it was, it was a special moment because I, I believe I actually got something that, that he maybe didn't even intend for me to understand. And, and I echoed in my mind at that time, and I immediately remember thinking in a, a very conscious way that, oh my God, he didn't say mom. He said, don't talk to my wife like that. And what was different, as, as any 12 or 13-year-old will tell you, I probably, probably have heard a thousand times or more, don't talk to your mom like that. Don't look at your mom like that. You know, those kinds of things. But today was different. Today, he said, don't talk to my wife like that. And my brain, I think, actually exploded. I think a few uh, gray cells actually died that day. I mean, I, I didn't understand. I mean, it was like, he didn't say mom. 
And it just echoed in my mind. He didn't say mom. He didn't say mom. And then I remember starting to think, well, who's his wife? I mean, this, this, this wasn't right. This just blew my mind. I mean, I, it was crazy and uh, all that. And so he's there and he's got me and he real. I'm still in the Vulcan death grip, mind you. So my arm's still twitching and I'm having this epiphany as he's telling me this. And then he probably realizes, all right, this is a little bit too intense. And he backs off a little bit and he says, my dad had a great sense of humor. And he says, and if you ever talk to my wife like that again, I'm going to kill you. And nobody's going to know you're gone because we can make another one that looks just like you. <laughs> and, uh, and, and boom, you know, my brain, I'm just, and I didn't even, I missed that part. Cause I'm still honestly thinking he didn't say mom, he didn't say mom, you know, who is this, who is this woman? That's his wife that I never understood before. And so later on, as I am doing the rest of the chores that I needed to do and, 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 you know, finishing out my discipline, which included the trash and, you know, all different dishes and all that kind of stuff. And so as I'm doing that, I remember thinking, and this is the genesis of, of this whole contextual intelligence idea and navigating complexity. I remember thinking, you know, if this situation repeated itself the same way, and it was my grandfather who was here, he would have said, don't talk to my daughter like that. And if it was my uncle who was here and the situation played out the same way, he would have said, don't talk to my sister like that. And I went through several other people and realized that this person who I had been relating to as my mom and only my mom was actually way more than just my mom. She was a wife, a sister, a daughter, a friend, and all the other things uh, that she wore. And I remember thinking, boy, if if I would have understood this earlier, or does this apply to other people in other places, how much better could I relate to them? How much better could I understand who they are, what they are, and how much more influence might I have? And that was actually the very genesis of the whole idea. And I didn't have the whole you know, download insight at, at 13 years old, but over the years, as I begin to understand how to relate to people and, and, and what people meant and, and the, the the background that people have, the ideas that they have, the experiences that make who they are, uh, how important those actually are. It's uh, it it became this thing that I begin to call contextual intelligence. And and uh, when I in my graduate studies, I came across a quote from Plato that I remember reading in. And the quote Plato's quote goes like this: "Is from the Republic." He says, "A pilot must of necessity pay attention to the seasons, the heavens, the stars, the winds, and everything proper to the craft." if he is to master the ship. And when I read that, I immediately thought, that's what my dad taught me. I don't know if he meant to teach me that. I don't know if my dad ever read Plato, but that's what my dad taught me. If he, basically, if you want to survive your teenage years in this house, boy, you better understand that this woman you're relating to, the brothers and sisters around here, that's not just your brother. This is my son. This is not just your sister. This is my daughter. And, and knowing that is going to be pivotal for you you know, navigating life successfully in this house. And I've just extended that concept basically to organizational life, leadership development, relationships, um, personal, public, private relationships that we have. And, and so that's kind of the, the genesis of it and how understanding the context that people bring 
to the environment where, where you're interacting with them and how that influences who they are and what they are. And, and if you can understand that, you can actually act intelligently um, with them and get done probably way more than you ever imagined you could get done. And that's ultimately what I'm about and what contextual intelligence is about, is getting done stuff that you never thought you could get done on your own. It's interesting because in the last number of years, there's been a big focus on emotional intelligence and talking to us about how emotional IQ is different than the way we traditionally think about IQ in terms of verbal and nonverbal skills and such. But you're talking about a type of intelligence and contextual intelligence that's completely different from that. Yes. Yeah. We get a lot of comments in the conferences and the workshops that I do is, all right, so how is this different from emotional intelligence? And I'll, I'll start off by saying there is similarity, just like you notice. The first thing you hear, well, I'm talking about interacting with people and, and there are some similar things there. But I do think there's, there's a little bit of a different approach to this. And, and it's really important that we understand when I'm talking about context, I'm meaning all the different situations that a person finds themselves in. And, and if I can back up for one second and go back to my doctoral studies, when I, was, when I was doing my dissertation, one of the things I wanted to know is what makes people or what, what behaviors do people demonstrate consistently when their environment changes rapidly and suddenly? And other, from a leadership perspective, I looked at how leaders behave when their situation changes. So, for example, they get a promotion, they get a demotion, they change industries, uh, whatever. I kind of asked, you know, kind of a, a, the question if, if, if Phil Jackson, who at the time was, you know, maybe the best NBA coach, you know, on the planet, you know, Phil Jackson could win championships with multiple NBA teams. Is it just basketball? Or if, if we put him in, I'm a Detroit Lions fan, so I'm, I'm close to Detroit. So if I was thinking, you know, if Phil Jackson started coaching the Detroit Lions, could they actually win a Super Bowl? And, you know, does, is, is coaching coaching or is it, are there idiosyncratic aspects to people's, people's jobs and industries? And so that's what I was interested in knowing. Are there skills that he would use across the board? And then I apply that to business and, and management. So context changes. And that's basically my idea is I go from one industry to another industry, one job to another job, one person to another person, interacting with them. And as I interact with them, not only does the emotions uh, change, my emotions, their emotions, but there are other variables that influence the context. So this is where I think we kind of separate a little bit from emotional intelligence is when you can look at the context, there's a lot of things that make up the context. Your decision-making matrix, for example. One of the things that I talk quite a bit about in the Contextual Intelligence book is three-dimensional thinking, which is how we leverage hindsight, insight, and foresight. And this would be one of the big differences between emotional intelligence and contextual intelligence is when you evaluate an opportunity or when you evaluate a situation, uh, we typically, as humans, default uh, most most of us typically default to the past or the experience, our experiences as a major source of input uh, for how we evaluate that opportunity and assess that opportunity. And that's important to do. I would never say we should not use experience, but experience is only a, one piece of all the other uh, elements of time or three dimensions, which would be the present and the future. So I would say 3D thinking is a big part of how we practice contextual intelligence. And that's understanding how your experience has contributed to where you're at right now. 
how the future, the foresight is contributing to where you're at right now, because that's a huge part of who we are and where we're going. And then when you have your hindsight in order, and there's a whole skill set to doing that because we want to avoid hindsight bias. When we have our hindsight in order and we have our foresight in order, then it creates for us an insight that is actionable. And that is huge because a lot of us don't know what to do right here, right now in this exact moment. And I think that's because we haven't assessed our hindsight or assessed our foresight accurately. So that's how context is construed. Context is made up of of the past, present, and the future. And when we look at all three, now I have a more complete picture to make a decision on. So so that's where it kind of differs from emotional intelligence and in that the, the matrix we use, the context is might maybe more than just the situation we find ourselves in now, but it's actually a very rich tapestry of all different experiences. And then when you get multiple people involved in the equation, well, then it even becomes more complex. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you. And I can't wait to see where you'll go. That's what was going through my mind as you were sharing this. And I I understand in concept how 3D thinking works with an individual. You know, one's past experiences, predicting the future creates insight in the moment. But everybody, you mentioned hindsight bias. So when you're bringing in organizations with large people, everybody from different backgrounds and experiences, how do you navigate that in terms of contextual intelligence? First thing you've got to do is you've got to get over the hindsight bias, and which is huge because hindsight bias, in my opinion, is, is one of the biggest obstacles to practicing contextual intelligence successfully. Hindsight bias, the way I describe it in the book is this, and it's not, you know, I try to make it as practical as I can. So we'll, you know, skip all the academic jargon and all that. But hindsight bias, in the way I explain it, is just misremembering the past in your favor. And this is, this is one of the things that I think is really important uh, for us to understand. Every single person practices hindsight bias. So you don't have an excuse. You can't say, I don't do it. You do. And the first time you say, I don't do it, you're probably the biggest offender of it. So when we say, well, hindsight bias is misremembering the past, what we do when we remember any memory of any kind, we place ourselves as at this, as the central figure or the central character in that memory. So my Vulcan death grip story I told a little while ago, I remember that as me being the central figure in that. Talking to my mom about that story years later, she remembers that as she, her being the central figure and my dad as he, him being the central figure. And uh, which creates a completely unique perspective on, on how the, 
each event is interpreted. So first thing we've got to understand is everybody suffers from hindsight bias. So knowing that is a huge advantage. Meaning when I go to interact with my wife or my children or a colleague at work or whoever it might be, when I address them and I realize that when we're talking about a business plan, we're talking about a strategic objective, whatever, whatever might be going on, remembering our past conversations and placing them as the central character as opposed to ourself is a huge advantage because not only will you have a different perspective, a more accurate perspective of the bigger picture, you also will gain influence with that person. And it's, and it's one way to actually gain credibility is to go through that process. So when we think about hindsight bias, uh, we've got to understand that. And then to your question specifically, when we have a whole bunch of people interacting, a group of five or six or seven or maybe even more than that, hundreds, they all bring in these different narratives. They all bring in these different stories. And the contextually intelligent person actually takes the time to understand, not necessarily, you can't go back and and know everybody's history and everybody's background, but if you can understand that Whatever it is they're saying, they're saying it from the perspective that they are the central character. You are going to garner respect, influence, credibility, uh, and you're going to be able to accomplish way more than you ever thought you could do uh, by yourself. This is very synergistic in, in that regard. So that was something that I was going to ask you because you we teased it earlier, doing more, getting more stuff done, I think were your exact words. And so if from your perspective, that stems from being able to essentially meet the person where they're at from their perspective, gaining their respect, making them more willing to go to bat for you and be on your team. Is that right? Absolutely. I could, that, you summed it up perfectly. No charge on that. <laughs> appreciate that. So take us through some of the other fundamental aspects of contextual intelligence. Sure. So contextual intelligence, it's a matrix, it's a model. And if you get the book, there's a circumplex and all that kind of stuff. And it's based on some, again, a lot of research that I've done, but it's basically has three critical components to it. The, the model started with behaviors. I was looking at specific behaviors, how frequently they practice certain behaviors when they change context. And that's kind of the, the basic part of the model. But before we can talk about the actual 12 contextual intelligence behaviors, there are three mental models that every contextual Textually intelligent person has to practice. And the first one is understanding complexity. Uh, the second one is understanding synchronicity. And the third one is understanding tacit knowledge or where, where our information and rules come from. So if I were to just cover each one of those really quickly, I'll say complexity is my favorite one to talk about because I think that's really where we're at today. And, and actually, a, a few years back in 2013, uh, this book actually won a Leadership Book of the Year award for what I was told by the committee for this, this concept here. And that's the difference between complexity and complication. And one of the things I think that we do in our, in our world, in our society today, is we say things like, well, life is complicated, or this situation is complicated, or this relationship is complicated. And I know what we mean by that. And I'm not, you know, it's semantics, I understand. But, uh, but when we say something is complicated, what we're really saying is, it's, it consists of many parts, and it's basically based in, in Newtonian understanding of a mechanical world that uh, 
things in life and relationships are like car engines, for example, or a, a machine that has many moving parts. And we put those moving parts together and we create something. And we even say things in organization like we're firing on all cylinders or we're a well-oiled machine. And, and again, I know what we mean by that. And there's nothing wrong with, with saying that. But what we're implying is that if something breaks or something's not working, well, then I can just simply take it apart. And I can take out the, the, the bad spark plug and put a new spark plug in. And when I take the bad spark plug out, everything else that's connected stays connected the way it is and it's not affected. The problem is that's just completely false. There's nothing true about that uh, metaphor in life at all. And we go through life thinking that, well, my relationship is complicated. What that means is, and what you're saying is, when something goes wrong, if I just change this one thing, then everything else will benefit. So, well, my relationship is complicated with my wife. And the problem is, is I, I don't make enough money. And if I just had more money, then the marriage would be perfect or better. And so you actually go out and you do something about it and you start making more money and you find out really quickly, well, no, the relationship's still tough. Uh, it's because you're trying to solve a complex problem through a complicated process, uh, so problem-solving process. So I would say that's the first thing we've got to understand. Life isn't complicated. It's complex. So what's complexity then? If, if complicated problems are mechanistic, a complex problem is integrated. So, for example, uh, the metaphor I like to use is, is Plato. Um, you know, the kid's, kid's toy. If you take it out a couple different colors of Play-Doh and start mixing them together, pretty soon you're going to get a different color of Play-Doh. And, uh, and I might have two colors that go into that, but the third color emerges when you mix it enough. And that's what complexity is. It's when you have two different things or many different parts mixed together, they become something different. And that's where I think we have a big problem in our society and in our culture, understanding leadership, understanding performance, understanding management, understanding success and the, the skills and the things we want to accomplish. Um, if we start understanding that things are mixed, once things are mixed together, they can't be reduced. That's fundamental to complexity sciences. It's like the cake, for example. If a, if a machine is, is complicated, a cake is complex. So in the cake, there's sugar and flour and, and wheat and eggs and butter and milk and you know all that stuff goes in there. And the second they're mixed together, they become something new, a cake. And I can taste that cake and realize, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I put salt in instead of sugar. Well, you can't go in and take the salt out and put sugar in. Like with a car engine, well, I can take the battery out and put a new battery in. And, and there's a big difference there. And those, those differences have consequences for how we navigate life. So I would say that's one of the first things we've got to come to terms with. We've got to come to terms with the complexity of the world we live in and the relationships we have. And that really helps us understand how I can interact because we're interacting with people as if it's compli uh, complicated and, and it's really not. So I like, you know, I like to tell everybody in my audiences, it says, I'm here to tell you first and foremost, life's not complicated. And everybody sits back. Okay. What do you, you know, what do you mean? And, uh, and then we talk about the complexity aspect and a lot of people walk away from that in and of itself. Like, wow, that really helps. Now, can I tell you how to solve complex problems? Well, that's a whole process you, you go through and everybody's going to be different. But the, the big challenge in the work part of contextual intelligence, in my opinion, is resolving uh, and coming to a resolution in your own mind, the difference between how I solve problems 
that I view are complicated and how I solve problems that are complex because it really requires a different strategy. Um, firing someone isn't always the best thing to do. You know, you, and, and that's what I tell executives all the time. So they ask for an example. Well, my example is, well, let's say your uh, customer service department is failing and you're getting a bunch of complaints from um, customers about your customer service department. And uh, you want to look at the numbers and your solution is, well, let's fire the customer service manager and hire a new one. Uh, and you do that and the complaints still continue on. And, and the issue is, well, you're using a complicated framework to solve a complex problem because it's probably not just one rude employee. It's probably the culture you've created, uh, which goes back to your hiring um, metrics, your annual performance reviews and all these other things that are created. And it's a, usually a much bigger picture. And we can't just, um, well, my life is horrible. I'm going to get a divorce and, and get a new wife. Well, you're still a jerk. <laughs> you didn't fix the real problem, you know? Uh, and, uh, and those are the kinds of things that, that we have to wrestle with. So it really means creative problem solving in a way that accommodates everybody's input. And that's where I go back to that Vulcan death grip story of understanding. If I had understood from the beginning that Connie, that's my mom's name. If, if Connie was not just my mom, but a wife, a sister, a daughter, I would have related to her differently as my dad was teaching me to do. Uh, and I might have avoided the whole situation altogether if I understood that. Right. And you mentioned synchronicity being the second one. Yeah. So synchronicity. Now this is, this is fun. So synchronicity is a term, uh, coined by Carl Jung. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, with that and all that. And how I will say it is like this. And, and I have a, a very applied way to look at this. And, and Carl Jung said synchronicity was a mean, meaningful coincidences. In other words, a lot of, a lot of what we do is based on memories and experiences that we had and the meaning we make out of them. So for example, and this is the example I give is, is let's say I'm at work and, and I'm uh, just, you know, daydreaming uh, in my day. And I think to myself, you know, Matt, you should buy your wife flowers today. And, you know, I have that thought. And like, I think a lot of guys have that thought. And I like most guys just dismiss it when it comes in, because I've got stuff to do and, uh, and a job and a job to perform. So I just dismissed that thought. And then eight hours later, as I'm driving home, I'm driving down the highway and I happen to glance over, uh, sitting at a stoplight out, out of my driver's side window there. And I see a billboard for 1-800-Flowers or flowers.com. And I do what everybody does. I see the billboard for flowers and I immediately remember eight hours into the past of how I thought I should buy my wife flowers. And I might even entertain the idea that the universe is sending me a sign. Or something, or or God wants me to buy my wife flowers, and, and I'll make meaning out of a coincidence, and and even and it would even get worse if I was in the lane next to me, the flower delivery truck happened to pull up right there. So those are all coincidences, and we're we're intelligent enough to know that those are coincidences. But all of us, regardless of where you're at and how how much you appreciate things like this or not, we all think, huh, that's kind of strange. And, and if enough coincidences piled up like that, we would start making meaning out of those experiences. And we might even alter the course of our, of our ride home. I might actually 
pull over and try to find a flower shop to actually bring my wife flowers, which could, again, change the whole trajectory of the evening, good or bad. I'm either going to walk in with flowers and she's going to be thrilled and elated and it could end up being great for me, or I could come home with flowers and she could say, what did you do? You know, (laughs) kind of a thing. Right. Um, either way. So, but, so we make meaning out of, out of those events and, and how I say in the book is if we truly want to be contextually intelligent first, you've got to know that you do that. Now, everyone does it to a different degree. Certain ones of us are way more metaphysical, if I could use that for you. I don't know if that's the exact right term uh, to use, but then others, some of us are way more analytical and, and those kinds of things. It, it doesn't matter. We all do it to a certain degree or another. Uh, the question is, um, are you aware of when you do it? And that's what I mean by, un- by leveraging synchronicity. You have to be familiar enough with your own experiences. And this is where I find people fail in being contextually intelligent is you've got to be familiar enough with your own experiences to know how the meaning that you're making out of the things that you do and the things that you say, why, why is this a good thing to do or a bad thing? What has happened in your past? You know, and one of the things I tell people is that, uh, people who practice contextual intelligence leverage the synchronicity. And basically in a nutshell, what that means for us is there's no such thing as an irrelevant experience. And that's where I want to ultimately get us to is, is understanding 